Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and like a blackbird coming back to nest in the bay tree in your garden, it's always a pleasure to visit your ears again. Thank you for having us. Sometimes a book comes along that marries meaning, moment, information and enthusiasm with such force and beauty that it stops you in your tracks. Stephen Lovett's Birdsong in a Time of Silence is such a book. Started as the world ground to a halt, its first page opens on 24th March 2020, it charts the extraordinary days of the past year spent noticing the chorus around us despite it all. A keen birder, Stephen delves into the magic of birdsong and the places it can take us when we have too much time to dwell in the weeds and margins of our minds. I love this book, and if you're intrigued by birds and what might be going on inside of them, then I think you will too. Tell us about this book in its broadest possible terms, if you would. There was an anthology produced by Bath Spa University about three years ago that came out of their MA course, Travel and Nature Writing. And they gathered some of what they considered to be the best writing. And they launched it in London at a big swanky party. I didn't go. But I had a couple of pieces in there and a couple of agents liked it and got in touch. But then over the next year or so, I just kind of wore them down with my resolutely uncommercial ideas. One dropped out altogether, but another one was really quite dogged. And so she kind of persevered in the face of all my commercially suicidal schemes. And we eventually worked out that maybe I should write a monograph about a particular bird because she thought that that these were quite hot commercially. So I I tried to write something about a blackbird, but kind of creative nonfiction, maybe I I didn't think of myself as a creative nonfiction uh, writer. I'm not really a creative nonfiction reader. And I certainly didn't want to be a popular science writer. And I felt that however... However, I I pitched a book like that, it would end up being in the kind of popular science category. So just as we were about to give up, COVID struck. And then a lot of people began talking about the fact that they could hear birds again. This wasn't an original idea of mine, really. I think it was in the newspapers a lot around about this time last year. People were remarking on it. But this came at just the right time for me and the agent because we thought, aha, you know, here is the vehicle into which I can pour my writing. <laughs> so yeah, this mould appeared at, at just the right time, really. And of course, I, I know a bit about birds already, so I didn't need to do a great deal of research. We weren't able to travel, obviously, but everything I needed to see and hear, the fresh stuff, was within a three miles walk of my house anyway. So it, things were perfect, really. I, I'd lost my job. Well, my job had finished just before that. So other than not go mad and look after the children, I had nothing much to do. And I felt validated as soon as they accepted the proposal. Obviously, then I had a license to like bunk off the washing up and say, no, I've got to go out and you know emote in a park. So I just, like that. So I just yeah, I just kind of wandered, wandered around the parks with a notebook. So that's how it began, really. Although obviously it was a horrible thing to happen. Um, in a way, it kind of presented the framework that we'd been looking for, for for the book. It's it's a great answer in that there's so many things in there that I, I want to now pick up on and I'm not quite sure which one to pick up on. The stars aligned basically in a really fruitful way for you. But what became, I'm very keen to know, of the Blackbird monograph? Where went it? Uh, nowhere. But some of the writing that I had put aside for that, um, in fact, most of that writing ended up going into the Blackbird chapter in this book. I didn't have enough on a particular species to sustain a whole book. But yes, it was really useful in providing the basis for that chapter in Birdsong. 
And you said, you know, you're not a writer of creative nonfiction. What were you writing? What was in that book, the Bath Spa book then, that sort of caught someone's imagination? Or was it just that it was sort of between, sort of sitting between genres? Was that why you would say you're not a creative nonfiction writer? I think creative nonfiction was the label that they gave it at Bath Spa. Sometimes it's called popular nonfiction. I don't know. I, I tend to read unpopular fiction rather than popular nonfiction. <laughs> and, and I kind of, I can probably see myself ending up writing really unpopular fiction. I think that's where I'm, that's where the trajectory of my career is heading sooner or later. But I do enjoy writing from experience and I have a love of the natural world. And I, you know, I, I enjoy the alloy of, of the world as I experience it, worked on by the imagination and by whimsy and by language. So I, I found I found this kind of satisfactory kind of voice that wasn't too sciencey or knowledge based, which doesn't appeal to me so much, but was nevertheless kind of rooted in reality and rooted in experience. Yes. I wonder about how you sort of reach that mode of, let's say, storytelling. How do you get there as a writer to, to hit on that exact, I don't know, tenor of, of what you're trying to say? Well, there's different voices in the book, I think, because there's different kinds of writing. The, the parts of the book where I explain stuff are necessarily quite discursive. And I think in those passages, my background as a teacher and as someone who teaches critical writing at university that's all helped over the last few years for me to kind of find a clear and unfussy voice, explanatory voice. That's an extra layer of competence, I think, on top of a general kind of comfort within the English language that I think I've got from childhood just from reading constantly. So this is the kind of the compost, the linguistic compost out of which kind of good things can grow if, if they're given the chance and if you, you know, if, if, if things kind of fall the right way for you. So the discursive, informative parts is, is one sort of writing. Some of the book, as you know, kind of is more like memoir than anything else. So that's kind of a different style altogether. But then the parts that are more lyrical, that's mysterious. That's, I think, what most fiction writers also say is it's hard to know where that stuff comes from isn't it so i'm looking at a, a let's say a, a chaffinch or something and I'm, I'm watching it and i'm listening to it and then a phrase or a word or an assonance like a very short it can just be two words often there is some sort of um, internal patterning within those words assonance or something it will just suggest itself i've no idea where it comes from and then i sort of match that i sort of try that on the bird uh, the appearance of the bird or the the sound of the bird and then the critical faculty comes in i think and says no that doesn't quite work you know it sounds a bit forced yet you try too hard the language is dominating over over the bird too much and it sounds a bit artificial or it's just inadequate to the experience in some kind of way. And then there's this really delightful kind of semi-automatic process of me rejecting that phrase. And then other phrases coming to mind until I find one that does seem to kind of encapsulate that part of the experience that I'm that I'm having. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It really does make sense. Yes. You know, in, in a word, inspiration, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overused and, and, and abused word. But the, the more lyrical parts, I think, rely upon imagery a lot, whereas the kind of the, the informative discursive parts are just me trying to be as clear and helpful to the reader as possible. Yes. Of the imagery, though, I think one of the things that sort of stood out for me was when there was an incongruity at play. That's what I enjoyed. It's sort of like a surprising image or the blunt body of the owl. It's sort of just so poetic, really. Did you ever write poetry or do you read a lot of poetry? Yeah, I read a lot. Um, I've always read a lot of poetry. And over the last 10 years, while I've been raising, helping to raise young children, I was never much of a novel reader anyway, but 
there's been no time for the last decade to read novels, really, other than those I have to read because I'm teaching them or editing them. So that's kind of added an imperative on top of my predilection, which was already for short stories and poetry. I want to ask you about the sort of act, as it were, of translating birdsong. It seems to me there's, it's again, some of the standout passages are, 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 as you say, those sort of more lyrical pieces where you're, you're almost distilling birdsong into words, which is interesting in, you know, just to take from the book, given that the mechanism of bird vocalization is so different from our own, there's really no chance of trapping it in an alphabet. I love that. How, How do you go about then that sort of taking the birdsong you hear and putting it down on a page? There isn't just one way of doing that. I think one of the ways of reading the book through this lens is to see the book as a series of uh, more or less failed attempts <laughs> to, to, to do that by different different means. So sometimes I do try to transcribe the sound. Not very often, but sometimes I, I do that. Sometimes I try to find like almost a, a synesthetic or other kind of sensory analogy for, for the sound that a bird makes. But most frequently, I think, I sort of make this explicit towards the end of the book. I find that I rely quite a lot upon analogies with human contrivances and, and apparatuses. So a bird song might remind me of, you know, a tiny hammer hitting a tiny anvil or a cog or a flywheel. So lots of the imagery is, is tactile and even mechanical. And I don't know whether that's an, a, like a necessary thing or just a peculiarity of mine. Yeah. And that, that section of the book, you, you make the point that with these sort of industrial mechanical noises that you, you have used here, as we evolve away from those or as industry changes, what we have available to us to describe things like birdsong must also evolve. Do you think that the way we describe birdsong will have to evolve because of the world we're in? No, um... I don't know how important this this is really. I don't know how much we need to worry about it. I mean, we we are material and birdsong is is material. So in that sense, the potential for analogy will always be there. And for as long as we remain material creatures, those opportunities will be there. I think the greater danger, as it seems at the moment, is that we'll just become so interior, taken aside by by technology in particular, you know, we'll live our lives online so much more that we'll kind of just lose touch. Yeah. With, with, with outer reality. Um, and you certainly, I can see this happening. This isn't just a dystopian uh, projection of mine. I mean, my, my kids, and we, we try to give them a very outdoorsy childhood, but nevertheless, I, I was out much more as a child than my children are, you know, because of societal changes and because of changes in technology. So so that worries me more than a lack of opportunities to describe bird songs. Yes, that the opportunities to actually hear it in in real life is the key thing, really. Speak then a little bit of your own childhood, which pops up in the book, and Birdsong's sort of a portal for you in the book as a memory to revisiting places. I wondered if you could say a little bit about when your love of birds first began. Yeah, I guess I was about seven. I've got a bird book somewhere here that says from mummy and daddy. I think it was 1983. Yeah, so I was seven then. And as I describe in the book, I went through some other enthusiasms first. I guess the standard, maybe typically boyish enthusiasms for dinosaurs and warplanes and fast cars. I was like a nerd in waiting and I was just I was just kind of the the particular avatar or manifestation of my nerdishness like changed every now and again. I was definitely an obsessive in waiting. And then birds came along. And at first this might seem a bit strange 
to go from warplanes and American fast cars, mainly Soviet warplanes, I have to say, MiGs and Sukhois and things, and American cars, I don't know why, to birds. But I think the connection was, and again, this is kind of stereotypically boyish, I, it was particularly birds of prey at first. So what does a, a Soviet warplane have in common with a peregrine falcon? They're both fast, they're rapacious, they're streamlined, they're exciting to watch. But then I became interested in birds of all kinds. I got my dad into it. My dad kind of picked up on this on this interest. So he gets a lot of credit for kind of maintaining this interest, I think. And then he started taking me out. So we're in suburban Birmingham here in the early 80s. We lived within a couple of miles walk of a nature reserve and within a, a bus ride or a short drive of Sutton Park, which is a, a huge park on the edge of Birmingham, which was actually a, a Norman deer park. So it's, it's, it's a very, very ancient, still very big park. So these were places that kind of fed my interest in birds, but also kind of fed my imagination. I go back to those, some of my childhood memories in the book, as you say. I, I do think that childhood is where our, a lot of our archetypal experiences are. Maybe we don't travel as far from them as we think we do. And in general, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who doesn't really um, have a strong sense of my continuity as a self with, within time, what philosophers call the diachronic personality. I, I don't really kind of, I can't experience myself in, in a linear way. I can't really connect myself as a child to how I am now. But birds appearance and bird song is one of the ways in which I can do that. So obviously kind of birds themselves don't really change. A wood pigeon now looks the same as a wood pigeon did in 1983 and they sound the same to me anyway. So they kind of provide points of connection. Yeah, it's kind of to buttress the self, I guess. They're, they're markers of selfhood. So they're really important to me as well as, you know, for obviously kind of the love of the things themselves and their their autonomous reality and the fact that yeah, they're so strange and beautiful and, and, and weird. They are weird and wonderful. Yeah, I, I think that what you just said, though, about the um, the um, sort of points in time, they're almost um, Proust's Madeleines <laughs> of a yeah. sort, feathered ones. Speaking of some of the, the weirder and wonderfuller, um, you know, because the book's full of things that, and I, I'm quite, a, I'm not as... I'm not a knowledgeable birder, but I do love birds. Um, and just some things that stuck with me, that the mind-blowing notion that they don't hear themselves the same way that we hear them, that's sort of incredible. I mean, they, they've been doing their thing for, for millennia, much longer than any of the hominid species have been around on the planet. So, um, so of course, they're not talking to us. <laughs> so kind of how we hear them and how we interpret them is a kind of, is a later, it's a superimposition. Yeah, I guess, I guess we're starting to learn more about, what they might be saying to each other. Some of it is kind of common sense and you wouldn't really need science to tell you. I mean, you can sort of tell by a bird's overall behavior when it's feeling belligerent towards another bird. You can tell em empirically, you don't need any particular knowledge or much less instruments to tell that when a bird makes a particular call, all of the other birds take cover. So that must be an alarm call of some kind. So um, they've got all sorts of calls that they can adapt for different purposes which are more or less obviously useful from an evolutionary perspective but then kind of more recent research also kind of backs up what was previously a more kind of contested because it didn't seem a scientific idea that birds also sing because they enjoy it and that some bird species in particular um, are able to improvise and there's no obvious evolutionary advantage attached to that. I mean, you can, like, within an evolutionary framework, within a framework of evolutionary biology, you can explain anything in, in that way. If a bird appears to be just playing and having fun, you can say, oh, yeah, okay, but 
the females of that species are, are more attracted to kind of playful, relaxed sounding males. And you, you can you can kind of make it work however you want. But even if that's true, it doesn't alter the fact, apparently, that they wouldn't sing unless they got something out of it personally, if you see what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're not just trying to continue their line. Um, they, if they didn't enjoy singing, they wouldn't do it. But yeah, what they're saying, we'll, we'll never know because we can't inhabit the body of a uh, of their species. But we can make in, intelligent guesses. And that's, yeah, that's a lot of fun. Mm. To talk of kind of the beauty of birdsong, which of course the book really celebrates that and in lots of beautiful passages, but they're not all beautiful, are they? So like the jay, do we suppose that the jay, for example, enjoys making the awful noise it makes? Well, I, I would hope so, because it'd be awful, wouldn't it, to just have this <laughs> bloody awful cacophonous croak and then just get really, really annoyed by your own voice all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah, I, I, I mean, who knows whether to another jay that sounds beautiful at all. Jays are surprising. Most of the, the crow family have a like a secondary repertoire of noises that you don't hear very often, but... Jays have this lovely, lovely subsong, this little babble that they make almost when they're talking to themselves. And it's very, very seldom heard. But they're capable of a much wider range of, of noises that, than you'd ordinarily credit. Yeah, you know, we're, we, we know very little still about why they sing and, and what exactly they're saying and what drives them to, to, to utter particular sounds at particular times. I mean, a lot of it is context, of course. You know, like our language, it's 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 contextual, but it also derives from some sort of kind of deep capacity. They they've got a, each species has a certain capacity, which can flourish or be suppressed according to environmental factors. But yeah, they they, they obviously kind of hear hear and see the world differently. You know, I find that really liberating, I guess, um, because it makes you realise that the world of our experience is only one version. And that they experience the world, not completely differently, because there is objective reality. But what does Louis McNeese say? Incorrigibly plural. The world is plural. So, and, and this kind of, this pluralism and plurality of experience, kind of drawing from a shared a shared basis, is really beautifully enriching, I think. I love that McNeese poem. But even... And and even thinking about that, the world being crazier and bigger, more of it than we think and everything. I think reading this book was the first time I sort of flipped the picture and thought of myself as being a massive, big, scary thing to a bird. <laughs> you know, because at one point you say that can the bird kind of make sense of me as a, as just a big unknown thing. So yeah, it's made me see birds or me as birds might see me in a really different way, which is fascinating. Yeah, you get to see yourself as an object. We're not used to thinking of ourselves as objects because we think of ourselves as the subjects par excellence. But yes, then there's this kind of dialectical interplay at work. The the more you see birds as having subjectivity, that starts you down the road towards the thought that, as you say, we're just like an object to them. Mm. (laughs) We're in their way or we're we're standing in the wrong place because we're blocking their access to their nest hole. Or yeah, we just look terrifying. Or as you say, if, if a bird is really small, like a goldcrest or a wren, I, I don't think that those birds know that we have faces. <laughs> they, they, they don't, they, they can't, they, they, yeah, we're just too big to work out. So they don't seem bothered by us. Whereas the larger and more intelligent birds tend to get freaked out by us. And the really smart birds like crows can identify individual human beings by their clothes, but also 
by mannerisms and posture and appearance and stuff. So they're highly subjective. You mentioned range. I wonder if I could ask you who is the Freddie Mercury of birds? I think Freddie Mercury is one of the musicians with the, the greatest and most impressive range. Who in the bird kingdom is Freddie Mercury? Um, among British birds, we're probably looking at nightingales and song thrushes and blackbirds, perhaps starlings as well. So all, all of those birds have many different songs, each of which is complex but they're also all able to improvise on those. So they're, they're, so in other words, they're creative. They're not just playing music off the scroll like that's been loaded into them by evolution. They, they can also kind of make up their own tunes. So what they can do is, is in theory, limitless. Another, another one of those great human virtuoso singers, Kate Bush, I think I haven't heard it myself, but I gather that Kate Bush has made recordings of, of herself just, just mimicking mimicking birdsong and that that's got to be worth hearing i think because she's got a ridiculous hasn't she got like a seven an eight octave voice or something she does i think range Mm, remarkable yeah wow i need to find this now though kate bush (laughs) yeah yeah i think so Mm. (laughs) (laughs) i'd like to hear her doing like a like a rap battle with a black cap from a hedgerow my goodness the very idea this is my life's work (laughs) to find (laughs) proof Yeah. yeah so just Coming towards our finish, Stephen, really, I suppose, unfortunately, um, but a little bit more than just about your intentions in writing the book, I suppose, if we sc- scroll back out aw- away from the specifics of birds themselves. I'm a big fan of the poet Mary Oliver, and I think I'm right in saying she said something along the lines, or she wrote something along the lines of on paying attention. It's a, it's the sense of being astonished and telling about that almost attention as a form of devotion. Um, and I wonder what your intention in writing about birds in this way was, if it was a case of feeling that one should hear it and then tell it. Walter Benjamin also said that attentiveness is the natural prayer of the soul, which is quite grandiose, as, as Benjamin sometimes is. But I think what he means is that he means prayer in the sense of attendance on meaning. Um, and if we conceive of attentiveness as attendance on meaning, like waiting for meaning, then that also implies a sense of kind of presence. You have to be present. You have to kind of be, you have to be being there, um, attending in that sense. So all of these kind of nouns, <laughs> you know, attentiveness, attendance, presence, they're all, they're all quite deep, aren't they? They're all quite evocative. Yeah. And on top of that, as, as an artist, as a writer, it, it's got to be communicable. So I certainly don't want any of the images in the book to be, you know, hermetic or, or private. Everything's intended to be recognized and communicated and likewise the discursive parts of the book i'm at pains to avoid technical language and i I really want the book to be as open to people as possible yeah and i I hope that people will recognize it you you don't need to be a birder you don't need to be any sort of expert or authority to go out and and take pleasure from birdsong and i just like the thought i guess of someone going outside having read a few pages of my book listening to a blackbird or a robin in a park without necessarily knowing what it is and just um, having one of my descriptions of it in their heads like this wonky seesaw or whatever that, that, that one of the blackbirds passages is like a wonky like a rusty seesaw or something and just being amused just being tickled by that just hearing that and thinking oh yeah that's about right actually um, and just having a bit of a giggle if i can just make people giggle in parks then, then that's job done, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it definitely will. I definitely read it with a smile. Do you know, you you read something and you're smiling out loud when you're reading it. It's it, it was it fun to write because it was fun to read. Yeah, it was it was it was. E- I mean, I wrote it in 13 weeks, so it, it was it was fast. It was fast to write. It was um, 
it was easy because, as I say, I kind of I know something about the subject anyway. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. I like the kind of the discipline of writing in an uncluttered, clear way when I'm describing stuff. So the, the more sciencey passages, the more informative passages. Again, I get quite a nerdish pleasure, I think, out of out of just getting that right and and, and stripping back any extraneous language and, and getting rid of clutter and just making it clear and direct. You know, putting humour into it when that's when that seems like natural and appropriate. And as for the images, as for the kind of the more lyrical passages, um, that's that's enormously rewarding. I mean, that that that's they're the most fun thing. Um, it's a particular sort of fun because you're not entirely in control of it. As I, as I said earlier, if I was in the park looking at a flock of goldfinches and, and listening to them moving about and say the, these words are coming into my head and I'm sort of kind of trying the words on for size and seeing if they fit the experience. And when that happens, when that comes together, like for the for the extract that The Guardian published, they, they wanted me to do some extra little descriptions to go along with the, the pictures that they came up with for, for that article. So I went outside and I was looking at a goldfinch and it looked like a Fabergé sparrow, you know, this kind of slim, slightly kind of dolly, <laughs> ornate sparrow. And it just, it just, it made me smile straight away. And, you know, that's always a good principle, isn't it, for any, any writer to follow. If, if it makes you giggle and grin and if you think, oh, yeah, that, 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 that's nice, that. <laughs> I can't take credit for it because I've got no, no idea where it came from, but, but it's nice, it works. Then you can kind of bet your life that, that other people will respond to it in that way too just finally well actually not finally two more um what that said and those lyrical bits being the the bits you most enjoy spending time with what might come next do you think you mentioned the commercially suicidal kind of bits at the start but (laughs) those maybe not those but what what do you think you might do next i am i'm working on an idea at the moment but it's it's probably too early too early to, to to give much away i certainly don't want to be um, pigeonholed as a nature writer. I think whatever I write, that isn't fiction. I, I would like to try fiction at some point, but I don't think this next book will be fiction. I think it will also be kind of creative nonfiction. Whatever I write will have nature in it, you know, because it's a constant in my life and it's important to me. But I think I might try something a bit more formally ambitious and it might be a bit more multi-layered in terms of history and culture than this book was. You know, this depends upon the gatekeepers liking the idea. <laughs> um, and they might say, no, what, what, is, what is this rubbish? You, you go back and write a, write a book about hedgehogs. And in which case, I'll, because I have a mortgage to pay, you know, I, I might have to do that. Um, but I'd like to be in a position where I can experiment, you know, a, a little bit, not self-indulgently, but because this is my first book and because I've sort of been busy for the last 10 years with, with helping raise children, I think there's an awful lot bubbling away under the surface that I w- would want to write about, but I don't. I don't know what it is yet. So I, I need some of this kind of wonderful creative idleness that writers and artists <laughs> grow inside, and then I, and then I'll see what comes out of uh, comes out of that if I ever get any. Wonderful. Just f- finally, your desert island bird. What bird you have? You have can, can only spend time with one or maybe a flock of those birds just to give a little bit of um depth to it but um which which one it's like asking what your favorite color is isn't it like it's the one you can see right now sorry (laughs) (laughs) you see you see one and you think yeah that one i saw a linnet the other day and i hadn't seen a linnet for a year or more and i was like wow that's extraordinary look at look at that um and then you forget about it again um probably let's say jackdaw i love jackdaws 
I love them. I love them more as I grow older and I grow slightly more curmudgeonly. And I, I love their drollness and their their humour and their inquisitiveness. I think they embody a lot of um, traits that human beings need more of. Thanks so much to Stephen Lovett for a fascinating discussion about his wonderful book, Birdsong in a Time of Silence. I highly recommend you get a hold of a copy. It's available from all good independent booksellers. And thank you for listening. We will be back again soon, rest assured. But until then, take very good care of yourselves. Bye-bye.